0: Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to First Samuel chapter 15. Reading uh, together here in just a moment. Um, verses 17 through 31. First Samuel chapter 15. Well, we look at the whole chapter. You want to keep your Bible open there, but we're going to read together verses 17 through 31. As you're opening up there, uh, we got word this morning um, from Dr. Harold Cushing, one of our, he had called one of our church members, he wanted the church to know, Harold pastored this church several years ago and is a dear friend to many of us here, myself included, uh, his son-in-law, Tim Curley, that's Charlotte's husband, passed away unexpectedly yesterday. And so Dr. Cushing asked if the First Baptist Church of and family would pray for his family and of course for Charlotte and himself and the rest Of the family, and I told him, or wasn't able to talk to him yet. But of course, we will pray, and I'll tell him that we are praying. So, when you think of it, and uh, many of you were so close with Dr. Cushing, and he had such an impact on your lives, I know you'll want to reach out. We've not heard anything about arrangements, but we'll certainly let the church know when we learn more. First Samuel chapter fifteen, verses seventeen thirty-one through thirty-one. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words? of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Verse 17, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, Devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh God, even now we ask if you would please open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, I ask that we would be changed by your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hundreds of years before the story we're looking at now, God's people were finally about to enter the Promised Land. After spending years wandering in the wilderness on the seemingly on the precipice of receiving the fullness of the promises of God, they were just about to enter the Promised Land. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to Moses' time reminding them of the law and giving them instruction for life in their new land. It's called Deuteronomy. That, word literally means second law, and it's a book that shows Moses teaching the wilderness generation what God had already taught their parents before them, but which needed to be reminded because they weren't there the first time Israel was to enter the promised land. But now it was time. And as the laws reiterated, as all sorts of promises of God are reiterated as the story of what God had done for his people was reiterated as Moses the leader was preparing them to do what God had called them to do in which they had been waiting their whole lives to do there's a little moment there in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 through 19 that are a fascinating little piece of the puzzle of what it meant for God's people to be faithful once they entered the land hear what Moses said Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And clearly God did not forget. Brothers and sisters, I tell you this morning, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here in this chapter, we see God's plan to visit His judgment upon the Amalekites, to fulfill His word, to use Saul and his people to visit God's wrath and judgment upon the Amalekites for their wickedness toward him and his people. As we'll see later in the text, not much had changed among the people of Amalek, though they had a new king, of course, Agag, Agag, and the things had changed. Nonetheless, they were still a warring people and an unkind people, a wicked people who still did not fear God. And yet in the midst of God for his glory, planning to visit judgment on those who would oppose him and his plan. Folks, this is not merely God being frustrated because someone didn't want to get along with his chosen people. These are people who tried to snuff out the promises of God. And as we recognize, the promises of God to Israel were not just promises of God to Israel. God's promises to Israel were promises to the whole world because through a seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed, including ourselves. The Amalekites warred against Israel and didn't fear God. And in doing so, they warred against the seed of Israel, our Lord in Christ, Jesus. They tried to snuff out the promises of God before they ever had a chance to make it to the world. There would never have been a moment where one could have said, peace on earth and goodwill toward man with whom God is pleased. There would have never been a moment when Jesus could have come into the world if the nation of Israel had been snuffed out. But here God... Had incubated them among the Egyptians and used the Egyptians to finance and fuel this new experiment of theocratic nationhood that God was creating. And the Amalekites tried to end it. And yet this storyline of God carrying out His vengeance on the wicked is undercut and overshadowed by the disobedience of Saul. Saul finds a way to make this historic occasion about Saul. Again, we're coming here to a place where Saul's theology of glory is overcoming a theology of the cross, a theology of God's plan in the gospel, to borrow terms from Martin Luther. This morning, I want to show you something. I want to show you the great need we have. The great need we have to follow God in God's way as opposed to following our own way and our own pride. This morning I want to show you three truths to help you see how to cultivate a heart of obedience toward God. Now listen, you cannot obey God in your own power, in your own works, in your own pride. I'm not here to preach to you how to do better at working better for God. But I am going to show you the way that God in His grace will cultivate in you a heart and an attitude and a disposition that leads to and results in obedience. Some of you may wonder sometimes, why can't I just obey? Why can't I just do right? I've had this moment with children before where they say, I just, Dad, I I know I'm supposed to sit still. I know I'm supposed to not talk, but I just can't do it. I might have had that conversation a time or two with my parents. How do we cultivate a heart of obedience? You may say, I don't know how to obey. I wish I could. How can I know and love God and serve Him? How do I desire to know and obey God? Perhaps these three points will be helpful for you this morning as we look at the story of Saul. Here's the first point today. Loving God's glory leads to obedience Loving God's glory leads to obedience. You see these instructions early on in chapter 15, these first three verses. You see God has commanded um, Saul to carry out the ban, a holy war on the Amalekites. Notice in particular, verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now listen, no, nobody here has an easy time with the judgment of God. Nobody here, I would guess, I would venture to guess, nobody here sits around spending most of their time thinking about God's wrath, thinking about God's judgment, just cheering on the judgment and vengeance of God, And so God's judgment can always be difficult for us to swallow, but I think it's particularly challenging for us when God chooses people to carry out His vengeance. God in particular is choosing Saul, and He's choosing the army of Israel to carry out His vengeance against the Amalekites. And we see the severity of God's judgment here. There is no living thing, including the children of the place, that are to be spared. Everything is to be devoted to the sword. This is, first of all, a sign of God's judgment. It's meant to demonstrate God's absolute and total judgment, but it's also a protective means for the people of Israel. If the Amalekites are allowed to survive, they're allowed to live on, then they will continually be a threat to the people of God. And so ultimately, God is protecting his own people by judging the sins of the Amalekites and giving this people who has continually been wicked before the Lord, judging them and giving them ultimately what they deserve. Now it's a challenge to us because he chooses to use Saul to do it, but that becomes very important for us in this. Not every war that Israel carried on and not every battle that they fought was to be an absolute execution of the ban, of this holy war, of a total, total annihilation of a people. It's not that God is frustrated with Saul when he doesn't carry out his commands just because Saul was more gracious than God or more merciful than God. We'll see, Saul was no such thing. But we see that in this particular moment, God's people are to be an instrument of the justice of God. And that we must recognize as we continue through the narrative again as we look at the life of Saul we recognize he was not the king who was after God's own heart he was not a king who obeyed the Lord as he should but he was not an altogether wicked man in fact you see here the way he spares the Kenites he spares them and sends them along the way certainly there you see an element of his mercy and his reflection of the merciful heart of our God But I want you to notice as he goes and begins carrying out the ban, verse 8, "...he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted." To destruction. And at this moment, Samuel hears from the Lord. And he's reminded here of the rejection, the rejection of Saul as king. I regret, verse 11, that I have made Saul king, the Lord says, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. He cried to the Lord all night. Now, notice verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed and went on to Gilgal. As Samuel comes up, I love Saul's response, telling of the way we act in our own sin. Saul's proud of himself, isn't he? I mean, He's already set up a monument to himself. You know, I guess it's sort of Saul's first holy war. And so we're going to set up a monument to ourselves. We're feeling good. I've done what God told me to do. Notice what Saul says Blessed be you to the Lord, he says to Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What then? Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? We are far worse at hiding our sin than we think we are, brothers and sisters. You don't think the Lord knows? You don't think the Lord sees? Saul, in typical Saul fashion, says, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared. The best of the sheep and of the oxen, why? Why did they do it? Oh, well certainly Samuel can get on board with this. Saul says they did it. I I know, I know. But just so you know, the reason they did this was to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. It's interesting, isn't it? Maybe a Freudian slip, so to speak, there. Where Saul says the Lord your God and not the Lord our God. Samuel will hear nothing of it. Stop! He says, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And then Saul says to him, Speak. Brothers and sisters, I think you can see so clearly the way that Saul was preoccupied with Saul's glory. Later, he'll say, when he's making excuses again for his sin, I was afraid of the people. And to me, this is Saul's fatal flaw. He saw himself as someone who was keeping a job. You see, when you've been hired by people, you do what they ask you to do, right? If it's in your job description, you better do it. And so what Saul is doing is sort of circling the wagons around his kingship to make sure that public opinion stays pro-Saul as king. And so what does he do? He goes, and sure, he gives lip service to what God has required, but rather than carrying out the ban, he placates the people by allowing them to keep some choice sheep and oxen, and then for some reason or another, chooses to spare the king as well. And then when he gets caught, he tries to put a veneer of religiosity over it. Oh, well, we only kept these good things to sacrifice them to the Lord. You see, Saul's concern is with Saul's glory. He builds a monument to himself to remind the people of what a good job he's doing as king. But I want you to notice that Saul's preoccupation with his own glory prevented him from being authentically concerned about God's glory. Brothers and sisters, God has every right because God is God. God knows all and God sees all. God knows the future just as well as He knows the past. God knows, and He has every right. If if God wants to wipe a people from the face of the earth, God can do it. God has every right to do that. He's he's God. We believe in God's justice. And though it may bother us some to see the nitty-gritty details of it, all of us at our very core crave for God to be just. There are wicked people in the world that we no, ought to be punished for their grave and horrible sins. We say nobody wants to believe in hell until you bring up Adolf Hitler. And then we begin to think, if God just lets that guy just off the hook for no reason, what kind of God is He? God has every right, but Saul doesn't. Uh, Saul has no right to kill anyone. Saul has no right to shed a single drop of blood in the name of Saul. And yet what he did is he took God's holy war, he took God's ban, and rather than being concerned about God's glory and the great sweep of human history and what God is at work doing, and instead of seeing what God is doing, instead what Saul did was he made it a monument to Saul. It became about what Saul wanted to do. He thought, well, I won't obey God, but I'll do something God likes even better than obedience. gravely wicked to use God's name and God's desires for our glory oh oh how scary it is to be a pastor how easy it is to talk about God all the time and to talk about what God wants and to talk about what God's doing and how easy it would be to slip in just to slip in well you know God didn't say this in the Bible but I bet he'd like it even better Matt's ideas Y'all know who loves Matt's ideas? Matt loves Matt's ideas. Throughout the centuries, we see the danger as unspeakable atrocities can be performed and God can be blamed. And even in churches in our own day, you see the way the sort of spiritual abuse can come to God's people when it becomes more about the glory of man than the glory of God. Isn't it clear that Saul's disregard For the glory of God is what led to his disobedience. Don't you see the way that he committed murder? Because he didn't carry out God's orders according to God's plan. Let me ask you this question. With whose glory are you preoccupied? For whose glory are you living You will never learn to lovingly obey your God if you don't love his glory more than you love your own. Second of all, not only must we love God's glory, but second of all, loving God's economy leads to obedience. Loving God's economy leads to obedience. Not God's financial plan not the way God handles money but instead theologically when we talk about the economy of God what we're talking about is God's plan for humanity and the world he created the way things function and work in the world that God made we have to love God's economy now Samuel doesn't let this stand he rebukes Saul in verses 17 through 19 He begins, though you are little in your own eyes. Isn't it interesting to see that false humility is often a sense of pride? Part of the reason I think, personally, just based on some clues in the text, part of the reason I think Saul was so preoccupied with Saul's glory is because he was insecure. He never felt secure in his calling. He never really trusted the Lord. It was all about Saul. Brothers and sisters, if God has called you to do something and all you think about is you, I promise you, you will become a prideful tyrant before it's all over with. Because if God's calling you to do something, it's not up to you ultimately to do it. It's up to Him. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you. He told you what to do. And then verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? In verse 21, Saul reiterates his religious Excuse, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then we hear Samuel's word from the Lord. Has the Lord, verse 22, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, so he also has rejected you from being king. Isn't God's economy strange? Isn't it a weird thing? Isn't the way God likes to do things weird to us? It just doesn't always make sense. You see, it doesn't really fit the economy of, of prideful people, but in particular, you can see here the way it doesn't fit the economy of prideful kings. A strong desire for the glory of self. A strong desire for the praise of the people. And a strong desire to be able to use common sense. Common sense. Look at this. Of course, God. Look, I'm sure the Lord just really wasn't aware how good the cattle was among the Amalekites. He doesn't want us to waste all this. Surely He would rather me, I don't know, sacrifice some of these, keep a few for myself. Surely that's more important to Him than me obeying Him. Now, isn't it interesting that this thought, and in fact, some of these very words are repeated in the Bible? Over and over again, you've heard this. I think Keith Green had a song years ago, to obey is better than sacrifice that might just be something good for us to all i don't know how into tattoos y'all are it doesn't seem like a real tattoo group but maybe that, maybe that'd be a good tattoo so you remember it every day let me just yeah i don't know maybe a few of you you know you just go ahead and, and add it on there maybe right here right here right here put, put it put on your mirror to obey is better than sacrifice we have to be reminded You see, Saul of the fact this was no common war. It couldn't be carried out like a common war. This wasn't Saul's war. It it couldn't be carried out like Saul's war. This was God's war. And and this was Saul and God's people being used as an instrument of God's own judgment and wrath. They're being the hands and feet of the Lord. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what sort of spiritual pride? has to be present in your heart where you get to the place where you think a sheep a beautiful sheep a costly sheep but a sheep is more valuable than a baby even an Amalekite baby what what sort of spiritual pride has to be there when you spare the King but not the toddler what sort of things have to be happening in your heart where you allow the cattle to low, but you don't allow the babies to cry I ask you this question what ways do you value most What economy do you value most? Are you carrying out God's will like it's common? Like you can act however you want? Brothers and sisters, when you start mixing up holy things with your will and your way, you can really get in a real mess. You can really start to really mess things up. Do you love God's gospel plan or do you prefer worldly Ways? Are you obsessed with power or are you obsessed with common sense or are you obsessed with getting your way or are you uh, obsessed with being seen as glorious or are you glad to submit gladly to God's theology of the cross God's economy of small things God's insistence on obedience rather than sacrifice. We want flashy things, showy things, tangible things. We think God thinks like us. We think God wants what we want. But God wants what God wants, and He's clearly revealed it in His Word. To obey is better than sacrifice. And many of us have done it, and all of us can, convince ourselves that anything is better than simply trusting and following God. But brothers and sisters, if you convince yourself of that, you'll be fooling yourselves. We must love God's economy if we're going to truly obey God. God doesn't need us to help Him do things better. We follow what He has said. We must love God's glory. We must love God's economy. And finally, we must recognize that true repentance leads to obedience. True repentance leads to obedience. Nobody will be perfect. Nobody will perfectly obey God. No one has perfectly obeyed God, and that's why repentance is so essential. Superficially, Saul says he's sorry in verses 24 and 25, and though despite this sort of superficial apology, I think Saul's more concerned about the consequences than he is the heart of God. Samuel repeats the rejection in verse 26 and then a dramatic moment happens in verses 27 through 29. Samuel turns to go away and Saul seizes his robe and as he walks away, the robe is torn. And Samuel, in one of the most dramatic and saddening and horrible moments in all of the Bible, turns and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. The third instance total, second of three times when that word regret is used in this passage. Interestingly enough, twice it says that God regretted having made Saul king. In the range of meaning of this word regret, in that context, it must mean something like grief. He's sad. It's a We're meant to see the tragedy of Saul. I I call Jonathan a non-tragic tragedy. This is a tragic tragedy. Saul throwing his life away while trying to gain it. Instead of losing his life in order that he might gain true life. In these other situations, it's an expression of God's grief, his sadness over Saul's choices but here what it means is once God has purposed to do something he will not change his mind and Samuel is reminding Saul God has said the kingdom will be stripped from you and it's over Saul requests that Samuel come back with him and Samuel does but I don't think it was to honor Saul I think it was to play out the scene that we see in verses 32 and 33 one of the most macabre scenes of the Bible but a show of commitment from Samuel Samuel there brings Agag out who lightly approaches and says surely the bad times are behind us and there the Bible tells us Samuel killed Agag he finished the ban he did what God had asked and the Bible says he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord meeting out God's wrath and judgment This chapter closes as it ought to close, with grief and sorrow. Samuel went to Ramah, verse 34, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel had just said to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. It's a reminder for us as this judgment is being carried out that Agag was not some good man. He was a man who deserved God's judgment. I hope a passage like this, a passage that's shocking, right? This is, you know, people, we talk about Sunday school all the time. There, there were, I, hope there were no, I hope we have never had flannel graphs of this chapter first baptist church right what a horrible scene it is but i fear at times we've lost a sense of the seriousness of sin i think we've lost a true sense of repentance like saul did saul didn't truly repent he was fearful of fearful of consequences years ago i was sharing the gospel with a guy and he looked at me and he said god's going to forgive me that's his job And sometimes as Christians, I fear that's become our mantra. That that we've become so lackadaisical about sin and repentance that we sometimes think, well, God's going to forgive me. That's His job. But brothers and sisters, we must take repentance seriously. We need to grieve over our sin. Not to just merely regret consequences, but to see What sin results in to see the the dirt and the crime, the awfulness of a passage like this, and to recognize the culprit behind it all. We want to blame God. We want to blame Saul. We want to be frustrated with Samuel. The culprit behind it all is sin. Oh, how badly we need to grieve over our sin. I hope if nothing else, this chapter, this passage, will disabuse us all of the notion that religion is something we can play at. What grace there is in Christ. Oh, I love grace. What joy there is in the gospel. Oh man, what joy there is. I I believe we're a joyful church and we ought to be a joyful church. What sweetness there is in knowing the Lord. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take Him at His word. It's sweet to know the Lord. But none of this means that it's not deadly serious. None of this means that we cannot, that we must stop taking sin seriously. Grace is not a cheapening of a view view of sin, but a heightening of the view of sin. Because as a Christian, we recognize what the cost of grace is. Is Because we look and we see Agag being hacked to pieces before the Lord. We see the Amalekites being put to the sword. We see the severity of God's wrath. And we look away just as we would have looked away had we seen our Savior nailed to the cross. They're drinking the very cup of God's wrath to the hilt on our behalf. We deserve what Agag received and more. And yet Jesus took it for us. Oh brothers and sisters, would it lead you to repentance? Would it lead you to see would it lead you to see how seriously God takes sin? Would it lead you to see how beautiful the gospel is? All of us have sinned, all of us deserve what the Amalekites got and worse. And yet Jesus took what we deserved in order that we might be joint heirs with him. You've been welcomed into the people and family of God. God poured his wrath out on the Amalekites and in order to preserve for Himself a people, in order that His Christ might come into the world, and it was through that Christ that God Himself tasted wrath for us all. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see how serious it is? But do you see what grace is offered in Christ? (coughs) And today, would you embrace true repentance? in order that you might know true love and grace unending. I offer you an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I want you to know sin is serious business, but the gospel is deadly serious as well. And it's a true remedy for sin. Though you deserve God's judgment, though you deserve God's wrath, did you know that pure and perfect grace is offered to you because Jesus suffered on your behalf? If you will turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith today, I believe you will be through Jesus today. I believe you will be saved. Second, of all, you may be a Christian, you may say, Pastor, I just need a few moments to reflect and to think and to pray. This altar is open to you. I'm available to you. Or this time is for you to pray and to consider what God might have you do. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. We're not a perfect church, but I promise you this. We will preach you the gospel of Jesus from the Bible every single Sunday. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, let me invite you to come. Let's pray together.